Hello and welcome to Bone Up, the podcast all about bones, how we make them, why we break them, and if we fully understand them. I'm David Armstrong. Hi, and I'm Richie Abel. And over this series, we're going to be exploring osteoporosis, bones, what we know and what we're yet to discover. And we hope you will join us on the journey. So for anyone keen to learn more about our infrastructure of calcified collagen, this is Bone Up. Hello and welcome to this uh, rather unusual bonus episode of Bone Up. All the fun of the Bone Up podcast, but only half the calories. Uh, We have a special bonus episode for you today because there is some big news in the UK uh, about a new drug. Yeah, big news in the UK, the EU and the rest of the world. Uh, A new medicine called Romosozumab has just been approved for use uh, in the UK. And it looks like it might be a bit of a game changer. It's the first new treatment for osteoporosis in a decade, and I know it's causing a great amount of excitement in our community. And in today's episode, we're going to run through how we might see the new medicine used in clinical practice and take a quick look at how romosuzumab works. So I suppose, uh, David, you're the clinician, so we should begin by asking you some important questions. First of all, I was wondering, who decides which medicines can be used to treat patients in the UK? Yeah, well, the answer to that is really it happens at, at several levels. Um, most obviously, the decision is between me and the patient when I see them at clinic. We discuss why they need the medicine. We discuss about their risk of fracture, about their osteoporosis. And we will discuss drugs that might be suitable and uh, go through the the risks and the benefits of each drug and then hopefully come to a a conclusion or come to an agreement. Often patients, to be honest, will say to me, well, look, what do you recommend, doctor? But it's important, as I say, to involve patients in that discussion and we then come to a conclusion about the drug that we feel would be best. However, in terms of me prescribing that drug, then that drug has to be commissioned or has to be paid for, basically, by a local commissioning group or in different parts of the world by an insurance company. And so that's a different layer of deciding which drug the patient gets. I may feel a patient needs one drug. The insurance company or the commissioning group might decide differently. And then above that, again, of course, then there's there's larger regulatory bodies, uh, like in the UK, the National uh, Institute for Clinical Excellence, or NICE, who take views on, uh, on whether drugs work and on the economic impact or the economic benefits of using drugs. And they give the go-ahead at a much higher level as to which drugs can be commissioned by local commissioning groups. And I suppose you could even look above that again to things like the MRHA and the EMA who decide which drugs are safe and which drugs work and which drugs can be used in humans and therefore provide a license. Um, So while day-to-day in the clinic is a decision between me and the patient, uh, there are actually several layers or several pieces of the jigsaw which have to fit together before the patient actually gets the injection. And one very vital piece of the jigsaw has been put in place by the, by the announcement from NICE a few weeks ago 
that they intend to approve romocizumab uh, for use in osteoporosis. So this sounds like a really rigorous process then with layers of approval and ultimately it's the doctor and patient together that decide which treatment to use. It is a rigorous process and it's one way in which we can reassure patients that drugs which they're getting are safe and that drugs are effective. And I suppose it's a way of reassuring the community at large that money is being spent in the best way because ultimately there's only so much money about to be spent on the health service and we have to make sure that drugs actually actually make sense to prescribe them to lots of people uh, because we like to show that it's effective for example in reducing fractures and you know hopefully in, in sort of saving money in the long in the long term um, but yes it gives reassurance it seems a complicated um, a complicated process and there are times when doctors will have heard of new drugs at a conference or read about them in a study and been somewhat frustrated that they can't prescribe them immediately at the clinic. But at least we can be reassured that these things are, are regulated and that they're safe and that, and that they are going to be funded. And that if I start a drug, the money will be there for the patient to continue with the drug as well. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a process in place to ensure that things are done safely and properly. Who do you think will benefit from the new romosozumab treatment? The statement that NICE have, have, have given is interpreted by some people as relatively broad. So for, uh, to, to quote it, they have said that they recommend it as an option for treating severe uh, osteoporosis after the menopause in people who are at high risk of fracture if they've had a major osteoporotic fracture within the previous two years and are therefore at imminent risk of another fracture. That's very similar to the statement issued by the, by the SMC or Scottish Medicines Consortium as well. And really this is aimed at people who are at very high risk of having further fractures and at people who have, generally speaking, severe osteoporosis. And there's a particular focus on people who've recently suffered vertebral fractures. And I'm sure you know, Richie, uh, observing the way things are moving in the clinical field, that there's more and more focus on vertebral fractures now. Mm -hmm. We realize that vertebral fractures uh, have a poor longer-term prognosis, just the way hip fractures do. We realize vertebral fractures are a very strong predictor for your risk of going on to have other fractures, either in the spine or elsewhere. And of course, vertebral fractures in themselves can be particularly debilitating. They can be painful. They can significantly affect mobility and they can affect all sorts of things in life, even like, like sleeping and washing and, and putting on clothes. So, so there's a big focus on vertebral fractures and there's a realization that vertebral fractures are very important to detect and put you at a very high risk of having further fractures. So if you look at the groups of people who are likely to benefit from romosuzumab, there are likely to be people who have vertebral fractures within the last 24 months. And indeed, if we can pick these people up within the last 12 months or even the last six months, they'll probably have even more benefit. They're likely to be people who have very low bone density. I would say probably T-scores of less than minus three or minus 3.5 or lower. Or they're people who on the FRAX score that we've talked about, I think in almost every episode, people who have very high FRAX scores and who under the, the, the new NOG guidance 
are at very high risk of further fracture. I don't imagine romosuzumab is going to be used in people who have what you might call mild osteoporosis, people who haven't suffered fractures, or people who would continue to benefit, for example, from alandronic acid or one of the bisphosphonates, uh, or may even benefit from HRT. I think we're certainly aiming towards the more extreme end of the field here. Um, but potentially, I think as time goes on, there will be quite a, a, a wide range of people who will benefit from, from this drug uh, because it does seem to be particularly effective. Uh, and I think we'll be focusing on those people who are at very high risk of further fracture. It seems to work quite quickly and it seems to be quite effective in reducing fracture. And I suspect we'd be focusing particularly on those who have had recent vertebral fractures because it seems especially effective in that group of patients. And what about exclusion criteria? I think the, the posh word is contraindications. Who can't take the new treatment? Yeah, well, one of the things obviously NICE have set out, it has to be postmenopausal women and you have to be at high risk of further fracture. And that obviously excludes a significant number of people to start off with. More specifically with the drug, I suppose the, the one thing that we, we have talked about a lot in, in preparing for this drug and in, in watching the development of this drug is that there is a suggestion it may increase the risk of what are called cardiovascular events. And that is, that is a heart attack, myocard infarction uh, and stroke. The increased risk of that seems modest but it does seem to be there in some of the studies, but not all of the studies. If you look at some of the studies where this is compared against, against a placebo, in other words, not doing anything, then it's hard to be certain that there is an increased cardiovascular risk, although it may be there. If you look at the studies where it's compared against using a bisphosphonate, like alendronate, while it works much better in terms of increasing bone density and preventing fracture, there did seem to be rather more... Uh, strokes and heart attacks in the group of people receiving romosuzumab. Now, some people have suggested that it may be bisphosphonates actually reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease. So it may not in that sense be a fair comparator. But I have no doubt that as we start to use this drug, we will be very carefully ass uh, assessing people's cardiovascular risk. And there are tools for doing this. There, there, are, there are tools like the Q-risk calculation and so on. Uh, but I think if you have a bad history of cardiovascular disease, if you've had strokes or heart attacks, then it's unlikely you'll be prescribed this drug in the immediate future. Apart from that, uh, there is a small risk of uh, osteonecrosis of the jaw because it is, it's what's called a, a dual action drug. And hopefully that's something you'll be able to explain to us later. It's hard to get an exact figure for that. Uh, and of course, anyone who had any sort of allergy to the drug or component within the within the drug, we'd, we'd be excluded as, as well. Um, but as I said to you, I think, I think it will be patients really who have at a very high risk of fracture, who've had recent vertebral fractures or postmenopausal females um, and who don't have a high risk of cardiovascular disease will be the group of people we'll be looking uh, to, to, to use this drug in. And I think looking forward to seeing just how effective it is. I suppose the regulatory bodies will be monitoring the first cohort who get the treatment and checking in to see how well they're doing and uh, how, the, how they fare with the contraindications. 
Absolutely. And that's something I think we've touched on before. Patients who are entered into uh, formal studies with drugs, uh, we tend to try to exclude various comorbidities and unusual, uh, unusual combinations of other diseases and so on. As a drug starts to be used in real life, then we get all sorts of patients of different shapes and sizes and backgrounds using the drug. And it's important to follow up. Um, it's important to follow up in real life what happens to people taking these drugs. Sometimes we see things that worry us that we didn't know about. Sometimes we see benefits that weren't weren't evident um, even in the original study. So absolutely, it's part of that safety process, that reassuring process we talked about initially that um, that, that these people are followed up and looked at, looked at very carefully. So from the point of view of a scientist, you're, you're obviously excited every time I hear you mentioning the drug, you're, you're excited about it. So could you maybe tell us a little about, about how it works? I mean, I, I mentioned it, it's called a, a dual action drug, although you sometimes hear it described alongside uh, teriparatide, the other anabolic agent. Could you, could you just fill us in a little on, on how it works and why we're excited about it? Bomacizumab is a dual action bone forming agent in the parlance. And the, the primary action of the drug seems to be to activate dormant osteoblasts. And the listeners who've uh, been with us on our journey will know that the osteoblasts are the cells that form bone. And by activating those osteoblasts, the treatment leads to the formation of new bone. And the other thing the treatment does is that it causes the osteoblasts to secrete molecules which reduce osteoclastic activity. And of course, the osteoclastic cells are the cells that resorb bone. So if we think back to the analogy that you taught us, David, in the very first episode of Bone Up, we think about the bath. When a patient gets romosuzumab, we're trying to fill the bath by turning on the taps and blocking the plug at the same time. And the way in which uh, romosuzumab brings about this bone forming effect is by inhibiting a molecule called sclerostin. And sclerostin is normally released by the third type of bone cell. Those are osteocytes. And listeners will know that osteocytes are osteoblasts that kind of mature after they finished forming the bone. And the osteocytes uh, send out this molecule sclerostin, which can suppress bone formation. But romosuzumab binds to the sclerostin, takes it out of the game, and then releases these uh, bone-forming processes. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I wish your listeners, our listeners could see just how you describe that with your, with your hands. Richie, as you were describing that, you had the osteoclast in the left hand and the osteoblast in the right hand. And yeah, that was a, that was a very vivid description, as I, can, as I can see it on the screen. So, I mean, it's interesting in how it works then. So it works in a completely different way from the other medicines that we have. What effect does it have on the bone then? Does it just give us more bone or what, what does it have when you're looking at the skeleton? So there, there are studies of the vertebrae, the lumbar spine and the hip that have looked at how the bone changes when a patient is treated with romosuzumab. And there's a really wonderful study uh, that came out of Cambridge University by Dr. Ken Poole. And they looked at how the lumbar spine changes over 12 months of treatment. And what they found is that in the vertebrae, the, uh, the bone increases in mass and thickness a lot. 
So uh, basically, if you take most bones in the body, they're made up of an outer shell called the cortex, and that's filled with a honeycomb called the cancellous bone. Uh, if you've ever eaten a T-bone steak, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And uh, this, this outer shell, the cortex, seems to increase by around about 10% in thickness. And uh, the density increases a lot. And the density of the trabecular bone increases by about 18%. And that's just in 12 months. And if we think about our analogy, our bath analogy, you can really think about romosuzumab as turning on the hot tap. It's bringing, out a, bringing about a huge increase in bone mass and thickness in just 12 months is quite extraordinary. And that's exciting. And, and sometimes I will show a patient, maybe their DEXA scan and look and say, look, your bone density has increased by 10% in a year, let's say. And I know people don't necessarily appreciate that doesn't sound particularly exciting. But if I then explain to them that without treatment, bone density will fall maybe by one to 2% a year. And we're talking about bones increasing in density by 10 or 20% a year, then it gives an idea of just why we're so excited about this. From the bones point of view, this really is a massive increase in mm. in the amount of bone mineral density there and we hope in, in the strength of bone as, as well. Yeah, uh, I think some studies have also combined the romosuzumab treatment with other treatments by following on one treatment after romosuzumab, maybe a bisphosphonate. So you can even help to maintain that new bone mass, that new bone thickness. It's really incredible. It's probably an important point to make that for, for the other anabolic agent that we know about at the moment and that we use, teriparatide, and for, for the romosuzumab as well, it's important once you have finished your period of treatment that you go on to a, a different form of treatment so that you, you don't lose any of the bone that you have gained. Romosuzumab is given for 12 months. It's a, it's a monthly injection that you get for 12 months. And then after that, you would switch to probably a bisphosphonate or possibly even denosumab to prevent bone loss in the same way that if you receive teriparatide as an anabolic injection for 24 months, you then have to transition to a, a bisphosphonate or denosumab to, to prevent bone loss, which comes back to I think what we were talking about right in the first episode here that uh, the idea in the past that you started on a bisphosphonate and continued on it for 20 years is now long gone. And, and treatment for bones, I think, in the future will be a period of treatment with, with, with one medicine and then maybe a, a gap and then a treatment with a different medicine, maybe building up bone for a period of time, maybe preventing bone loss for a period of time. And it will be very much uh, a sort of a, a portmanteau for each different patient as, as we work on increasing the strength of the bone, increasing the density of the bone, perhaps even one day, Richie, you know, following on from your work, increasing the quality of the bone and following them through life with this sort of constantly changing and specifically tailored uh, treatment for the particular patient. And certainly the development of a new drug is always exciting. And the development of a drug which works in a completely different way from other drugs is also exciting because it just gives us more options and it gives us more choices as we sort of work through the, the journey with the patient. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, in, it's interesting uh, the comparisons you're drawing there with teriparatide. As I understand it, uh, romosuzumab is, is very effective at increasing the mass and thickness of the cortex as well as the cancellous bone whereas teriparatide 
mainly acts on the cancellous bone. And so that kind of maybe places romosuzumab at, a, at an advantage. And uh, either of those treatments can then be used in uh, before bisphosphonates that can come in as the follow-on treatment to help maintain that mass. must be quite exciting as a clinician now to have more tools in your tool belt to be able to treat your patients. Absolutely. And uh, it's, as I say, I think it's moving more towards the day when things are more and more tailored for individual patients. Uh, another difference between the romosuzumab and the, and the teriparatide uh, is our understanding that teriparatide is a very effective drug at increasing bone mineral density, particularly at the spine. But I think it's generally quite well understood now that it works quite slowly initially at the hip and that in, in many patients, you may actually lose bone mass at the hip in the first few months of teriparatide treatment. Mm-hmm. Now, for most people, clinically, that doesn't make a great deal of difference. But if you start off with very low bone density at the hip, I don't really want to be giving a patient anything that is going to reduce that further, even for a short period of time. Romosuzumab in the early studies suggests that the increase in bone density starts immediately and starts at both the hip and the spine at the same time and that may be because it acts differently in bone and increases thickness as you say of the cortical bone as well as the as well as the trabecular bone um, so yeah. yes it, it, it just provides us with it with another option and isn't it interesting it helps us understand how bones work more not only not only do you as the scientist come and explain to me how bones work which is interesting for me in seeing patients but sometimes as we discover new drugs and use new drugs in patients then we can go back to the scientist and say, well, here's what we've discovered in the, in the clinic. And can you help us with an explanation of that? And can you take that then and work on, on something else? Yeah, I'd really like to get hold of uh, bone samples from patients treated with uh, these different drugs and look at what effect they have on the actual quality of the tissue. And you would imagine that the that the agents that work by forming new bone tissue probably lead to better quality bone than the agents that work by just stopping resorption stopping the uh stopping the natural repair processes in bone and it was interesting there what you were saying about teriparatide and how initially you can have a a loss of mass i th- i think that comes from the the different mechanisms of action of the two of of, of the two medicines yeah. uh Roma primarily acting to increase bone formation by activating dormant osteoblasts leads to a a lot of new tissue. Whereas teriparatide mostly acts on on the natural bone repair process, the remodeling process, and and it fires up the osteoclastic cells that resorb bone. And then later the osteoblast cells get fired up as well and start putting more bone back than was taken away. But initially, it's the osteoclast activity that increases. So in the short term, you see a drop in bone in bone mass before then you get the, the eventual and continual increase. Yeah, and my job is to explain that to patients in the clinic as to why we're choosing, choosing one option over the other or perhaps why I'm advising one option over the other. Now you can uh, now you can just uh, refer people to the podcast or, or play play little excerpts during your <laughs> during your consultations. 
So really where we are at the moment then, we're excited about this new drug, we're, we're in a position to use it. I think we are waiting for a little more guidance and I understand there probably will be some more guidance from various bodies coming out uh, to, as to exactly which group of patients will be, uh, will be suitable for this drug in terms of, of their bone density and the recency of their fracture. So we'll be able to obtain funding for them and that will come through local commissioning groups. But certainly it's an exciting time for us and it's an exciting time for patients. And I hope, I hope we'll be able maybe to come back to this in a future episode just to, uh, just to talk about our, our experience with this new drug, maybe patients' experience with the new drug um, and how it's impacted day-to-day work at the clinic. Fantastic. And uh, so listeners, we will come back to this topic and as the guidelines come out and we have more concrete information, we'll be able to pass that on to you. If you have any questions, uh, we have a Facebook page for the Bone Up podcast. So you can always look there and post any questions or queries that you might have. Uh, we're both on Twitter. Uh, so uh, I'm at Richie Abel and uh, my email address is online. So if you just Google my name, you'll be able to find my email address and then I can I can funnel your questions through to David or any other experts that that we can rope in to talk to us on the po- podcast. That's great. So thanks for joining us again for this slightly shorter episode. Um, I hope it was informative. Um, if you happen to be at the the Bone Research Society conference in in Manchester in a few months, we're hoping to run a live episode of Bone Up. So if you're a scientist and you're there, do come up and say hello. And you might even get your voice heard here. We have lots of exciting things planned for this and for the for the next series. Uh, and we hope we'll hear you again or see you again on Bone Up very soon. Bye, everyone. Bye now.